Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. Gilbert Black joins us on Sports Byline, one of the almost forgotten but very important parts of sports history, and particularly baseball history, is the Negro Leagues. And Gilbert is a part of that history of baseball and the Negro Leagues. He grew up in New York City until he was 16. He lived two and a half blocks from the polo grounds and in sight of Yankee Stadium. Gilbert, what was the first game you ever saw? I don't remember the first game, but it was around 1943-44. I snuck into the polo grounds and saw the Giants play. And the polo grounds at that time, from what Willie Mays has told me, that was a very big ballpark, wasn't it? Right. If I remember correctly, in center field was 501. And back when Willie Mays came up, they moved the home plate up and made it uh, 480 something. But as I remember it, as a kid, it was 501 to straightaway center field. The golden era of baseball, in my mind, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, was New York back in the 50s because you did have three teams. You had the Dodgers, you had the Giants, and you had the Yankees. What was it like right. as, as a baseball town? What was that like, New York? It was a, it was a bomb. It was, it was great. I used to love to go to the polo grounds and watch the uh, Giants and the Dodgers. And one of the memorable things I can remember, the Giants and the Dodgers playing – and the Dodgers got the bases loaded in the first inning. And Gil Hodges came up. And he hit a ball so hard and so far over the roof in left field. I don't know where it landed. <laughs> he had a grand slam. Let me ask you about a game in 1951. You were there for probably one of the most important games played and also outstanding outcome. It was Bobby Thompson. Tell me about that game because you were there. Well, Bobby Thompson at the time, but I was going to the polo grounds was my favorite ball player. Of course, that was way before Willie Mays. So I, uh, I, I love Bobby Thompson. He was my hero. And tell me about that game because you were there. Well, there's not a lot to, uh, to remember. You know, when, when, you, when, when you're young as I was and you're in a situation like that, 
of course, it was a lot of pan. You're talking about the home run, right? Yeah, it's a lot of uh, a lot of excitement and everything else, you know. Uh, and the Giants weren't expected to win. There were 13 and a half games out, I think, June, sometime in June, and the, the Giants came back and won it, and that broke a lot of a lot of Dodger fans' hearts. Yeah, Bobby Thompson's home run is called the hit. Uh, the shot heard around the world. It clinched the team's right, National League right. title over the rival Brooklyn Dodgers. And the rivalries, because they had two National League teams, uh, but for the American League Yankees, that rivalry is primarily Boston, wasn't it? Well, what about that rivalry? Well, I wasn't that much into the Yankees. I mean, I've gone to the, to the stadium a few times, but I was a kid. I didn't have a, a dollar and a quarter to uh, buy a ticket. I was mostly in the polo grounds where I could sneak over left field and into the stands. I had a, a friend of mine who, of my mother's, who owned a bar. His name was Percy Harris, and he had a season ticket to uh, Yankee Stadium. He had season tickets, and once in a while he'd give me a ticket to go to the stadium, and I'd have a chance to see Mantle and DiMaggio and, and some of those people. What were the seeds of your love for baseball? Well, as a kid growing up in, in, in New York, there wasn't that much excitement. I tell people I was a, a juvenile delinquent. My father was in the South Pacific and uh, in New Guinea, and uh, my mother worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So I really, I really ran wild, you know, going sneaking into the polo grounds at ten or eleven years old. That was a pretty big. That was a pretty big feat, you know, for a kid that young. But uh, that's what I did, and I love baseball. I love, I love the uh, the Giants, Bill Rigney, J- Jack Lockheed, Willard Marshall, Walker Cooper, so on and so forth. I was really uh, more or less a, a National League fan because that's what I was exposed to. At sixteen, you moved up to uh, Stamford, Connecticut, and uh, you were pretty yes. good. You were a pretty good pitcher in high school. You ended up with a record of fifteen and one. Did you not? That's right. Yeah, and they had I two had a, teams. I, they had two teams up there. One was called the Eagles, the other the Stamford Black Yankees. Tell me about them. Well, the Eagles was a, a man's team. When I moved up to Stamford, I didn't really know anyone, and I lived I, I lived not too far from Woodside Park, and the uh, Eagles used to practice there, and also the the uh, Stamford Yankees, but the Stamford Yankees were more or less young kids. And the Eagles were men. And uh, the Yankees wanted me to play with them, but I'd rather play with men. And uh, that's what I did. You decided to play with them in the fall of 1953, and you started to play in some big money games. Now, give me the definition of big money games. Well, when I grew up in Stanford, the baseball teams had to come up with the best ball players because the games that we that were booked they were booked and they were bet on. Uh, different different people would back different teams and they might bet 200, 300, 500 on the game. And uh, so we had to, you know, our teams had to be pretty darn good in order to in order to uh, to win. The biggest thing that happened to me, I played against a team out of New Haven, Connecticut, called the Indians, and we bet about. About five or seven hundred dollars on the game, the, the bookies that bet on the game, and I beat them one to nothing. And the Indians came to me because they were playing 
the Milwaukee Braves Farm Club in a couple of weeks. And they sent a couple of players down from New Haven to Stanford to see if I would pitch for them. My mother didn't want me to go because I was in high school. This was my junior year. <laughs> and uh, so what they we, we bickered back and forth, and I begged my mother, and we bickered back and forth. And then one of the guys said, well, what about if we just change his name? So they changed my name to Kenny Hart. And I pitched against the Milwaukee Braves Farm Club, and I beat him. And that was how I signed with the Braves. Yeah, and, uh, that, that was a that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, in 1954, you attended the professional baseball tryout camp with the Milwaukee Braves, and the very next day, uh, you were contacted and offered a major league contact, uh, contract. And after uh, attending spring training the following year, you were shipped to the minor league team in West Palm Beach, Florida, but later on released. What was that like when you were shipped down there with a major league farm team? Major League Baseball farm team. What was that like? When the, when the Braves signed me, they signed me to a contract to go to Quebec. I wasn't expected to go down south. When I got down south, it was altogether different. And the manager's name was Bill Stanicky. And he uh, he uh, used to catch for the Yankees. But anyway, there was, there was me and another guy named Jim Proctor, who were black, who the Braves sent down there. And he got rid of us as quick as he could because he said it was too much trouble running around finding somewhere for us to eat and somewhere for us to sleep. So he just got rid of us. And that goes into my uh, one of the things I talk about when I go to speak, and that's fake tryouts. We had a lot of fake tryouts back then which were uh, – where the teams would just say, well, they we're going to try out certain ball players and not, and not sign them. I don't know whether you're interested in that or not. I got a little to say about that. Yeah, I'd like just about uh, in 90 seconds, tell me about that. Well, Jackie Robinson tried out for a major league club, the Boston Red Sox, in 1946, I think it was. Him, him and, uh, him and uh, Sam Jethro. And they, one of the executives from the, from the uh, Boston Red Sox says, get the niggas off the field. We don't want him. And you know what happened with Jackie Robinson. And if you remember, Sam Jethro in 1951 was Rookie of the Year in the National League. Also in 1950, Willie Mays tried out for the Boston Red Sox, and he wasn't good enough. And you know what happened with Willie Mays. There was a rule that existed, was there not, that uh, when they did have blacks come into Major League Baseball, you were limited to only two per team? It was supposed to be, yeah. Of course, the Giants broke that. I mean, the Dodgers broke that record and also the Giants. The Giants came up with three, Hank Thompson, Monty Irvin, and Willie Mays. And the Dodgers came up with, uh, of course, Don Newcomb, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Dan Bankhead. But that was was like an unwritten rule. You weren't supposed to have no more than two players, two black players. Tell me how black baseball players who loved the game dealt with that type of discrimination where they could not show their wares as good as they were. How, how did they internalize it? How did they express themselves? Well, with me, I played with the Indianapolis Clowns, and I love baseball. And the Clowns offered me a chance to play without, without a lot of uh, – without a lot of problems. I played shortstop, I played third base, and I pitched. 
I mean, I played every day, and that's what I liked about baseball. And and uh, so that that's more or less how it was. I love playing with the clowns. Hold on just a second. We'll talk about that. Gilbert Black is with us, a member of the Negro Leagues. We're talking about his career and about his life, and we do that as we continue with more of you on America's Sports Talk Show. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And love was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Gilbert Black has joined us here on Sports Byline USA. He played in the Negro Leagues, and we're remembering his career and his life as well. Uh, there were certain towns and states you couldn't play in, and there are stories that I know that you have told before. But share with us what the experience was like for an African-American baseball player. When I went down the spring training with the uh, Braves, all the black players slept on the porches of the buildings, and the white players slept inside. And uh, that was, that was uh, against a state law that the blacks and the whites could not sleep in the same same situation. So, I mean, that was my first my first taste of being in the South after I got off the train and got to the Milwaukee training camp. They, divide, they separated us from black and white. Uh, you tell a story about playing in Mississippi in 1956, which was a time when black ball players still ate at segregated tables in Mississippi and also throughout the rest of the Deep South. Tell me more about that. Well, one of the stories I tell is Biloxi, Mississippi, in 1956, I was playing with the Clowns, and I'm a light-skinned guy, and I'm playing center field. Just why I'm playing center field that, that night, I don't know. But anyway, a sheriff's car pulled up on the field and stopped the ball game. The sheriff got out of the car, walked past the pitcher, walked past the shortstop, and walked out to center field and looked at me. And he, I had my hat pulled down over my eyes, and it was a night game. And back there, back then, the lights in the fields weren't really that bright. 
So anyway, he looked me over, shook his head all right, went back and got in the car. And what happened, somebody had called the sheriff's department up and told him there was a white boy out there playing with black boys. And that was illegal. I know that the Indianapolis Clowns were special in the Negro Leagues. Were they equal, uh, in a sense, to what the New York Yankees were in baseball, Major League Baseball at that time? Were they considered the same way in the Negro Leagues as the Yankees were in Major League Baseball? Well, I, I during the time I played, I played at the end of uh, at the end of the Negro League. I didn't play during the during the heyday, and I, I talked to many players because we had a guy on the team named Johnny Williams who played in the, played in the Negro League, and he was he was a bus driver and uh, chaperone, and I used to ask him a lot of questions about it, and he told me. That if the during the barnstorming after the season was over, the white teams would get together, Stan Musial and the rest of them, and the black ball players would get together and they play each other barnstorming around the country, and one team would not outshine the other one, no matter no matter you know who was playing. The the black team had just as much of an edge on the white team as the white team had on the black team. How did the players on the Indianapolis Clowns travel? Well, we had a bus. We had a, we had a bus, and uh, the the bus was somewhat segregated in a sense, not by uh, not by color, but the higher echelon of players sat on the right side, and the uh, sort of uh, lesser players, like the beer players, sat sat on the on the uh, left side, usually with two occupants in the seat. I was lucky I was on the right side with uh, one occupant. What was me the... and King Tut, me no. and King Tut, Bebop, and so on and so forth. What was the pay like for, for the players that played with the Indianapolis Clowns? I made $250 a month. And our last game we played in uh, Washington, D.C. in 1956, and the players were supposed to share the gate. And we would we would share the gate and get a, a percentage of the gate. I left with forty some dollars. I think it was forty two dollars. By the time I got home to Stanford, Connecticut, I was dead broke, <laughs> paying 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 to get home. So we didn't make that much money, but we loved baseball and we uh, you know kept playing. There was two rules on the clowns, and that was hustle on the field. And don't miss the bus. <laughs> I love the quote I've got from you. You got $4 a day for meal money. One guy would buy the mustard. Another would buy right. the bologna. And another the bread. And that's how we ate. Yeah. And signed cups and uh, cups and plates. So that's, what, that's how we ate many times. What was the atmosphere like with the uh, crowds when you guys came to town to play a game? Or any Negro League team faced each other? Well, we were we were comparable to uh, maybe Barnum and Bailey or uh, or the Holland Globetrotters. You know, when that bus pulled into town, people just went nuts. The the bus helped fill up the ballpark when they when the bus pulled in and they had the Indianapolis Clowns written on the side of it. And we get off the bus and mix with the people, and the the, the ball games, the ballparks filled up. I know you said one time uh, all you're thinking about is playing baseball. You get on the bus, you go to sleep, and when you wake up, you're in another town. 
people from everywhere right. are coming over to you like it's the circus. That was the best part. Right. What were the stadiums we, like that you played in? Well, some of them were just like uh, cowpacks. Other ones could be like major league ballparks. You know, we played in Jacksonville. They had a beautiful ballpark there. And Memphis had a beautiful ballpark. We played Griffith Stadium in Washington, which is a major league ballpark. Miami Stadium. I know in the heyday of the major leagues, uh, you know, you guys would play games, and it wasn't just a black audience, a black crowd that was there. It was mixed, was it not? It was mixed, yes. Now, when I was with the Braves and we played in West Palm Beach, I went out. I went out and I met people in town and told them I was a baseball player. They asked what I, you know, they didn't know me, so I. When I went to eat and this and that, and they found out I was a baseball player, they wanted to come to the game. When they came to the game, they had to sit out in the right field. They couldn't sit in the grandstand with the other white people. So I, that was another another thing, and this is playing minor league baseball. You mentioned that you knew Jackie Robinson. You occasionally played pool with his son, Jackie Robinson, Jr. Tell me about the first time you met him. Well, Jackie Robinson's son, Jackie Jr., you don't hear much talk about him. Uh, he died. He died on a, in a car accident on the Merritt Parkway, just just north of uh, Stanford. I uh, I played pretty good pool, and in the off season, I, I played a lot of pool. And Jackie Robinson Jr. loved pool, and I've been over his house. I met his I met his mother. Uh, her name don't just jump right in my head right now. His mother and his sister. And I stayed around there and played pool and hung around Jackie Robinson's basement. He wasn't there most of the time, but I had met him at the uh, Elks Club in Stanford. Tell me a little bit about Jackie from the standpoint about how other Negro League baseball players felt about him being the first player and what it might have meant for them and also others that wanted to play Major League Baseball. Well, of course, this is, this is a, a little before my time, but the stories that I heard, that he was not the best ball player. He might have been best suited to do what he did because he was a he was an officer in the service. He was a college man, and he could he could maintain himself. Um, he wasn't the best best fielder, and he wasn't the best hitter in the uh, Negro League. But he was, you know, a fine ball player. And when he got to the majors, he just terrorized the majors with his base runner. And that's one of the things the Negro Leagues were famous for was base running. One of the things that happened to you, Gil, was the fact that uh, you had a collision and you broke your wrist. Tell me that story. Yeah, Choo Choo Coleman, who later played with the Mets and the Phillies, him and I were we were in, uh, I guess it was June 11, 1956. I was playing third base. I went in, I went in to play third base for Joe Henry. And that somebody had a pop-up. I caught it in the coach's box, and Choo Choo ran right into me and broke my wrist. And that's why when I decided the next year not to go back. I know you've been very outspoken in uh, questioning why young people don't play baseball. We don't see a lot of African Americans playing baseball like we used to. And your quote was, the greatest time to practice is after the season is over in the fall. You're still in shape, and the weather is still good. I would have given right. anything to practice in a nice park with evenly manicured fields like Rogers Park and Danbury. Whenever I see the fields empty over here, tears come to my eyes. 
Why do you think that, right. that black athletes do not gravitate to baseball as they used to? Well, they have, everything, is, everything in society has changed with, with, uh, with the uh, cell phones, computers, and so on and so forth. Everything has changed. And uh, basketball, you know, it's, it's instant rewards. You get basketball, you, you got a lot of instant rewards. Baseball is a patient game. And uh, the kids today don't have that much patience, I would say. Uh, I do watch a little baseball, and I'm really impressed with some of the black ball players that I see. They remind me of some of the guys I used to play with. It's a pleasure to watch them play. Well, I want to thank you for your career and also for spending some time with us, sharing your life and your career with us. Gilbert, thanks for being a part of a great part of American history, baseball history, the Negro Leagues. Thank you, Gilbert. You're quite welcome. Thank you very much. Gilbert Black with us on America's Sports Talk Show. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.